You're listening to Fight for Love, the podcast for women dealing with pornography addiction in their relationship. Here is your host, Rosie McKinney. Hey guys, welcome back. I am so glad that you decided to join us today because today's guest has the most fabulous resource for you. This is the book about sex that Christian women have been waiting for. I truly believe that this particular resource has the power and the potential to radically change the way that Christian women are taught about sex. So without further ado, let me introduce you to today's guest. She is an incredibly popular speaker, a marriage blogger and the author of eight books. She also has a fabulous podcast. All the links to everything you'll find in the show notes. So sit back, relax and welcome to the show, Sheila Ray Gregory. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so honored, Sheila. I am a I'm a huge fan. So I have been following your blog. And when I heard that you were doing this particular book that we are going to talk about today, mm-hmm. I was so excited. It was like I could not think of a more perfect book for my ministry and to present to my listeners because Let's just get into it. Let It is called, would you like to give the title? It's called The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Told and How to Rediscover What God Intended. I can pretty much guarantee that everybody listening is in need of a great sex rescue because there's so mm-hmm. much junk out there, isn't there, being said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what we did, we, we surveyed 20,000 Christian, predominantly Christian women to find out what teachings in the evangelical world were hurting women's sex lives and, and marriage satisfaction. And it was really illuminating. It was quite, it was quite the survey. I just want to back up a little bit because this is an extraordinary project. I don't know whether anything like this has been attempted before. And I I know, I mean, I know personally, I get these emails every single day that it is so very, very needed. But but why you? Why now? Tell me the story. There's got to be a story there. (laughs) There is a story. Okay. So I have been writing, I've been blogging since 2008. Um, Before then, I wrote some small marriage books. I did a lot of magazine articles. I've been speaking a lot about marriage. And when I started writing and blogging, I was really in the mommy and parenting sphere and marriage a little bit. And then gradually, I started writing more about sex. Um, I had a lot of traffic when I wrote about sex. The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex came out in 2012. And I sort of became like the Christian sex person. And um, in all of that, I was writing, I was getting bigger, I was growing, but I, there was one thing I never did, which was I never really read other Christian marriage books. Unless I was asked to endorse them, I didn't read them because I, I have this horrible fear that I'm going to plagiarize someone. So I really wanted all the thoughts to be my own. So I hadn't read any books. And then in January of 2019, I was on Twitter and some people were, some women were tweeting about how they need respect, not just love. And so I joined the conversation and that particular day, I just, it was blah. I didn't feel like working. I was looking for an excuse not to work. And I thought, you know, I have a copy of Love and Respect. Maybe I should read it. So I went and I got it and I'm in the Myers-Briggs world. I'm an N, like I'm a big person, big picture person. I'm not, I'm not a detail person. So while most normal people pick up a book and look at the beginning and read it from the beginning, I don't do that. I say, what's the most interesting part of this book to me? And the most interesting part was a sex chapter. 
So I turned to the sex chapter and I read that and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my house. It was so abysmally bad. Like it was beyond abysmally bad. It was so toxic and horrible. I couldn't believe it. I started FaceTiming my daughter who works with me, another researcher who works with me. I would just read sentences out loud to them and I would say, I can't believe this. Because if I can, if I can tell you what his sex chapter said, it started off by saying sex is about a husband's physical release. If your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. So men need sex and women don't. You need to give him sex when he wants it. If you don't, he's very likely to have an affair. If he does have an affair, it's at least partially your fault. You need to be comfortable with him talking about his problems with lust if you expect him to listen to your problems with body image. And that's all he said. I must admit, Sheila, I have not read the books either. So my first exposure to that is through your book, actually reading the detail. And that and you take some actual extracts, don't you? Some stories. Mm-hmm. I my jaw I was like I was shouting as well and, I, and there was nobody in the room and I, I'm looking around the room <laughs> looking for somebody to go look look at this it's, <laughs> it's staggering absolutely yeah. staggering and devastating yeah so then after so I decided to blog about this and I did a week-long series on love and respect I talked not only about their approach to sex but also how the book enables abuse we had so many hundreds of women write in with tales of how their husbands had read this book and had used it to abuse them so we sent our report we wrote up a report sent it to focus on the family because they they promote love and respect a lot and they completely ignored us and I had been on the focus on the family radio show three times so I knew them. I thought they would answer me. I thought they probably just don't know this. They've never noticed, but they totally ignored me. And so we decided that they can ignore several hundred women, but they can't ignore 20,000. So we thought we are just going to do the largest survey that's ever been done. And we're going to see, we're going to look at how the messages that are in love and respect, but that are also in all of these other evangelical bestsellers and what that's done to women. And that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. And you also had a statistician on board, didn't you, to help you yes. do the questions? And yes. That, and yeah, tell me about that, because that's fascinating. Yeah, so she actually was already working for me. Um, she she was a family friend. They We actually got her husband a job in the city that we live in. So she's not even from our area. Um, uh, but they ended up moving to our little small town so that he could get um, a, a clerkship. He's a lawyer. Um, so he was. He, we found him a lawyer to work with. So she was just in town with nothing to do. And she has several master's degrees, and she's a trained um, uh, statistician and epidemiologist. So she's very good at stats. And so she was just writing posts for me. She was just doing normal stuff on the blog. And then when we got started on this project, it was like we couldn't have done it without her. And my daughter, who also worked on it, there were three of us who wrote it. My daughter is trained at survey development. Wow. And so Joanna was trained at interpreting stats and running all the confidence intervals and the chi-squared and all the stuff. I don't even know what it means. (laughs) You know, and Rebecca was trained at... Um, survey development, how to word questions to avoid bias, how to how to put reliability stuff in there, how to use previously validated um, measures of certain things. And so together we were we were able to do this. Mm-hmm. That is an incredible story. I mean, how just look at how God put that together. It was the dream team mm-hmm. came together mm-hmm. for this time, for yeah. this purpose. That is that's astonishing. And the reason that I'm, you know, pushing this and emphasizing this point is that you know, through one of your podcasts, actually, where you talk about love and respect and where the data comes from, 
it really highlighted to me how important it is that you have sound questions and sound data because otherwise you can just make it say whatever you like. Exactly. And that's the problem is that a lot of the stuff that has been taken as gold in in the evangelical circles of research, gold standard of research is actually extremely poorly done and would never pass muster in a university. And we designed our survey. We're actually going to be pursuing, um, well, we are pursuing um, getting published in peer-reviewed journals right now as well. So, Because from mm-hmm. what I understand, um, from what I've heard you talk about this, you went into this without preconceptions. You went into this to right. discover. You, you, weren't, you didn't have a certain point to put across, I don't think. Well, I mean, we, we, had, we had ideas. We, we, we were hoping to find certain things. And I'll tell you, like, we measured a lot of different evangelical teachings and how that affected sex and marriage. And some of them, which we really thought would have an effect, we did not find an effect. And so we don't talk about them in the book. Like, if we did not find a finding, we didn't talk about it. Um, and sometimes that's not because there isn't a fine, like one of the, one of the things that we know from other research affects women's sexuality is the modesty message, right? That you need to, don't be a stumbling block. You need to cover up or he's going to lust. We didn't actually find that. And, and we think the reason is because we didn't word the, we had a very difficult time wording that particular question in an unbiased way. And I just think we didn't word it right. If we had, if we had written four questions about modesty instead of just one, we likely would have found a trend, but we didn't find one. And so we didn't talk about modesty in the book because if we didn't find a finding, we didn't talk about it. But in the, in the love and respect thing that you're, that you're mentioning, we talked about how Shanti Felton in her study actually didn't find a finding, but she, in some bizarre way, used that as proof that something was true. And then Emerson Egrich based his book, Love and Respect on this survey. And it was very, it was very poorly done. Let's just go into that for people who haven't listened to that episode, um, if you wouldn't mind, just because it was such, uh, for me, it was a real aha moment. And, and, you know, this Mm -hmm. is a a huge message that women need love, men need respect. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what, what she did was she, and I, and I, I'm going by memory, so I may not be saying, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to say this word perfect. So excuse me for that. But she asked 400 men. So these were not predominantly Christian men. It was just a, it was just a survey of 400 men. Um, would you rather be alone and unloved forever or um, uh, dis, uh, disrespected and what was the other one? It was like alone and unloved or disrespected and um, inadequate. The question was, would you rather be alone and unloved or disrespected and inadequate? So what did she find? It was like 70%, roughly 70% of, of guys chose alone and unloved. And so what she said was that this means that men prefer respect to love because they would rather be unloved than disrespected. Now, the survey developer who was working with her told her that that question was inaccurate because um, guy, it wasn't clear what she was measuring. Because one of the principles of survey development is that you don't ask a double-barreled question. A double-barreled question is something where there's two things so that you don't know which one they're reacting to. If they're picking alone and unloved, is it that they would rather be unloved or is it that they would rather be alone? Like you don't know which one they're actually picking yeah. when they pick that answer. So that's that's not a proper way to do a survey. And so he was saying, this is not a proper question. And, and um, Emerson Egrich, in Love and Respect, actually quotes Shanti's finding there and says that Shanti used this survey expert to write her survey. So he, he touts this survey expert as this, even though that survey expert told her that was an invalid question. The pilot study she did told her it was an invalid question. 
But even more than that, she didn't ask women. Mm -hmm. And when people asked that question of women, they got the exact same result. So when other people went back and asked women that question, women also chose alone and unloved. And so there is no gender difference. And yet an entire book was written based on that one question in a, a badly worded question that the pilot study, the survey developer both said was invalid. <laughs> and that when other researchers asked it of women, um, turns out there's no difference. Thank you. Thank you for, for going into that. I'm sorry I put you on the spot. It's just that <laughs> respect key is so important because it is so misused. You know, I, I work with women in relationships where porn addiction is a problem. And that mm -hmm. respect key where you have to respect your husband, his wishes above what God says about sexual immorality mm -hmm. has been so damaging. So that's why for me, it was like, oh, I can't believe you know, Sheila has unpacked this and actually proven why it doesn't work because it doesn't work mm -hmm. in scripture. It doesn't work in experience. And yet we have all these teachings that are like just bashing on about respect, 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 respect above and beyond anything else. And it's just, it's just mm -hmm. harmful. It's just harmful. So let's dive into some of it, if you wouldn't mind, into your book, because okay. there yes. are three of the teachings that I'd like to um, really dive into, because they're the ones that I feel are most pertinent to my audience. Do you want to just, just tell us briefly, if you can, just give us a rundown of some of the Christian teachings, and then I'll tell you the three that we're going to focus on. Okay, well, some of the ones that we found that were problematic, for instance, um, boys will want to push your sexual boundaries, telling that to teenage girls, that does really bad things, because it makes sex seem like something which is threatening, and that you're responsible for keeping everyone from sin. Um, uh, you need to have sex with him so that he doesn't watch porn. Uh, all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Uh, you are obligated to have sex with your husband when he wants it. Uh, and there's some more, but those, I think those are the biggest ones. Probably your three are in there. Yeah, they were, they were that you, you hit those. So the first one, which is the most obvious one. And it's that when I got your book and I got your book like 48 hours ago. And <laughs> so I have done like my, you know, I did what you did. I went straight to the chapter that I was, so I went straight to the porn chapter. Right. You know, mm -hmm. And really absorb that. And then I've sort of worked outwards from that. Um, and I cannot wait to get my hands on a hard copy so I can start underlining so women should have frequent sex with their husbands to keep them from watching porn. Where does this come from? You know, I think, I think at heart, it's a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, um, where it says, you know, do not deprive each other except for a time and for mutual, con you know, by mutual consent so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, um, but then come together again so that you won't be tempted by your lack of self-control. Like I think, and, and I think people have taken that verse and made it mean something that it was never intended to mean. You know, they've taken that verse to, to mean that you need to have sex so that the other person won't be tempted. But if you look at scripture, when they're talking about temptation, they're talking about the normal everyday things that people face. And what does scripture also say about temptation? In fact, in the very book that the do not deprive verses are, three chapters later, Paul says, um, there's no temptation taking you except what is common to all of us. And God is faithful and he will provide a way to escape so that you can stand up under it. Like there is no temptation that you can't resist. And so Paul is very clearly putting the, the 
responsibility for temptation at the people's feet. Okay. So, so in this verse, it's not saying that you need to have sex so that they won't be tempted. It's just saying, Hey, you know what? Like, let's just, let's just have a good relationship. Let's have a mutual relationship that's passionate and that's fulfilling. And that's just going to help you handle the normal stresses of life. This has nothing to do with handling a porn addiction because a porn addiction is not a normal stress of life. A porn addiction is a sexual sin and it is sexual immorality. And there are so many verses about how you need to be responsible for yourself. And so it's just, it's just taking things that, that the Bible was never meant to say. And then what we see, like I, I, I give in, in the great sex rescue, basically what we do is we identify the harmful teachings. And then we give you quote after quote after quote of best-selling books that say this stuff. And for that particular one, I think one of the worst is sheet music. I mean, there's several that are bad sheet music was particularly bad in this one. You know, it, Kevin Lehman told women that if he, if you're postpartum or having your period, it's a good idea to give him a hand job or oral sex, you know, especially if he's been struggling with porn, which is just such a terrible message to give to women. And it, it, it makes sex entirely about something very ugly and it takes away the whole purpose of sex that God gave. And, and that's, that's one of the bigger issues is that, that we talk about in the entire book is that so much of the way that evangelical books talk about sex, they make it entirely about the husband's physical release, which is what Emerson Eggers did in love and respect, which is what caused me to have a nuclear explosion. But, um, you know, sex is not about a husband's physical release. Biblical sex, if you look at it, is like Genesis 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife. Biblical sex is a deep knowing. It is not an owing. You know, it's about knowing someone, not her owing him. And it's mutual. So biblical sex is a mutually pleasurable, intimate, passionate experience. It is not one-sided intercourse so that he ejaculates. Exactly. And we just miss miss the point entirely when we focus on you know the release sex is all about release instead of it being a mirror of god's covenant love with us it it's, mm-hmm. it's so distorting it but not only do you sort of deconstruct where it's coming from and why it's wrong you also go into how believing this particular lie mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. affects women's sex life and this is where i feel the book really yeah. is revolutionary because you yeah. start to go, oh my goodness, this is the effect mm-hmm. it's been having on me. Please tell us, how does it affect women when they believe this? That they have to, yeah. have, they have to be the man's methadone. They have to be. Otherwise, he's going to struggle. He's going to be acting out. Yeah, before I say that, I do need to make a reference to that word you just used, methadone. Okay. That is the most disgusting thing. And yet every man's battle says that. Like every man's battle says, be a merciful vial of methadone for him when his temperature is rising. I need to have a shower now. It's just disgusting. Yeah. Like, and let, let's even, th- and they say it twice. They use it. They use the analogy twice in every man's battle. Um, so it was deliberate. It wasn't an oversight, but let's think about what that's really saying. It's saying what he really wants to do is, is masturbate to this really gorgeous hot woman. But what he'll do instead is he'll use you, which isn't what he really wants, but by using you, it will, it will satisfy him enough that he doesn't need to go take what he really wants. Like, 
how is that even even a good message in in any shape or form? Like it's disgusting. It's completely dehumanizing. It changes the entire nature of sex and it's just wrong. So, so yeah, you can see why this would have negative, negative effects. Now I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. This whole book is full of numbers and I wasn't the stat person, but what we did look at was on each of these measures, how did it affect women's orgasm rates? How did it affect their attitude towards sex? Like, were they, were they more likely, for instance, to only have sex because they felt like like they needed to, or were they only likely to take or leave sex? Were they less likely to be aroused during sex? Were they more likely to have sexual pain? Were they more likely to feel distant in their marriage? So we looked at all of these measures and every single one of them has terrible effects on women's orgasm rates, women's sexual satisfaction, women's ability to get aroused, all kinds of stuff. It's just, it's very stark and we put numbers to it, which is really fun, I think. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fascinating because we tend to, mm-hmm. you know, break sex down mechanically. Like if this is happening physically, then women will be enjoying it without Mm -hmm. really going into what are they actually believing going into sex? What Mm -hmm. were they believing growing up? What what messages did they take into their sexual encounters? And the other part about the devastating part about believing this message that you are responsible for him acting out is that, you know, you talk about this and I talk about this. Porn doesn't turn all guys into complete hypersexual, you know, raging, mm-hmm. insatiable beasts, a large percentage, what, let's say 50%, actually become sexually avoidant. They avoid their wives. Exactly. So exactly. Could, you, could you talk to that? I mean, the, just the devastation that somehow you have utterly failed because he's no, he's not even interested, but you are supposed to be the fix. Yeah, and I think that is such an insulting message. And this just shows that the book's, in the evangelical world don't even know what they're talking about. And we actually made that point in this chapter that, um, for instance, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, huge issue, right? When guys watch porn, erect, like it, basically porn is responsible for the fact that guys under the age of 40 are now the most likely to be to have erectile dysfunction, you know, like, like they're, 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 it's, it's rampant in the under 40s and hardly ever is there a physical cause for that. You know, except if you're morbidly obese or diabetic, all those sorts of things can still impact it. Um, but, you know, in under 40s, 50 years ago, erectile dysfunction was not a thing. Not really. And today it really is. But studies didn't start talking about this until like 2006, 2008, you know, large scale studies, because internet porn only became a huge thing like 1998, 2000, when everyone had high speed internet. So studies really weren't done until later on. And yet a lot of the Christian bestsellers in sex and marriage that are still selling incredibly well were written all before this happened. And so we need to start realizing they don't know what they're talking about and they need to stop. Like a focus, a focus on the family program um, in 2000, November of uh, 2019, I believe it was, um, they, they were talking about uh, pornography. And one of the hosts said that, well, he thinks the reason that men turn to porn is because wives aren't giving them sex. And it's like, buddy, <laughs> you know, I, I went, I went quite ballistic on this one in the good sex recipe as well. But you know, for, if you were under the age of 40, the vast majority of men, their porn use started before they were married. It has nothing to do with her. And what they did was they trained themselves to deal with stress and boredom and frustration and everything rejection, whatever it might be with pornography. And so they've trained themselves. This is my stress release. 
And so if she does a normal thing, which causes stress because she's just a person, (laughs) you know, then he turns to porn and that's not, that's not her fault. You know, there are normal stresses in life. There are normal stresses in a marital relationship. And, and that's what you're just simply supposed to work on. But it's not her fault if you then turn to porn when he's already trained himself to do that. Exactly. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. And that's just this complete lack of understanding of actually this is an addiction we're dealing with. Yeah. And, and also you talk about, um, that I can't remember exactly what book you got this from, but it was uh, how if the guy transfers his lust for pornography onto the wife the wife is supposed to find it I think the way the phrase they used was vaguely pleasant yes and it's like I'm not no not thinking that husband like pouring and groping and just basically projecting all his you know lustful Mm -hmm. frustration onto you is going to be in any way pleasant for wives Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I think that was Every Heart Restored, which is part of the Every Man's Battle series. And that book was written for wives of porn addicts. And it is worse than Every Man's Battle. It is terrible. They give they give anecdotes. There were some anecdotes we actually couldn't put in the book because our editor just wouldn't let us. Wow. Even though they weren't our words. Like just to give you an example, there was a woman who who was writing who who they, they put her story in there and she said, I feel like a human toilet for semen. And their answer was you just need to understand how much guys lust. But but what that book said was that when he stops lusting and transfers all of that sexual energy onto you, then instead of instead of g- coming to you for five bowls of sexual gratification mm-hmm. a week, he'll start coming to you for 10 bowls of sexual gratification. And then they say, this will be vaguely pleasant to her. Yeah, I think that was the, the part where I threw the book across the room, actually. Well, this leads us very nicely onto the the second big one that we need to smash out the uh, the water today, which is that all men struggle with lust. It is every man's battle. I mean, we have so many women in our support group, and they start talking about every man's battle, and I jump on and I immediately point them to you know either a, a, an on fire Twitter thread that you've done or something. I'm going, no, 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 we need to move away from every man's battle, and they're like, why, why? So let's just get into the sort of the overriding message of every man's battle is that they're that they're all inherently lustful and lusting all the time. Yeah, there's actually a line in the book that says something like, if you wonder why, you know, guys lust so much, you need to understand we got there naturally just by being male. Mm. So what they're really saying is that the male propensity to lust is something which is God-given, it's innate, it's created in them. But let's let's take that lot. Let's look at that logic for a minute. If that is true, then can lust really be a sin? Like, can lust really be something that they're to blame for? Um, and I think that's why they end up blaming women for men's lust, because the answer to lust and and what I find so problematic about the whole every man's battle message is that their solution to this problem is the same view of women that pornography has. Because pornography says, you exist for my sexual gratification. You know, you're not a real person. You're just a collection of body parts. And when you read Every Man's Battle, every time they describe a woman, they describe her in terms of her body parts or how she looked. They never talk about her in terms of her intellect or her personality or her made in the image of God or anything. It's just her body parts. And their solution to lust is to bounce your eyes so that you don't see her. 
And we know that that is not how lust is beaten. You don't, you don't beat lust by avoiding looking at women. You beat lust by learning how to respect women as whole people and not as body parts. Exactly. Because let's talk about what message is that giving to women Mm -hmm. when they are assuming that this is how guys are looking at them or this, or this is how their husband is viewing everybody else. How does that affect your relationship, your sex life? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's this, there's this bizarre chapter, the first chapter of a book through a man's eyes by Shanti Felden and Craig Gross. I looked at a number of Shanti Felden's books. She was the one who did that survey with the love and respect problem. And her book for women only was, was really problematic as was her book um, for young women only. Um, but she also wrote this book through a man's eyes, which is about men's propensity to lust. And in the first chapter, it told the story of this guy, I think his name is Jack or something. Um, who is just a typical guy living his life and everything is so supremely stressful. So driving to work is stressful because you might see a billboard with a woman in a bikini on it. When he gets to, when he gets to the coffee shop in the morning, he's worried about what the barista is going to be wearing um, because she's very pretty. When he's at work, he's worried about the staff meeting and he tries to position himself so that he's not directly across from this woman who sometimes wears, you know, a button unbuttoned. And then there's this other woman at work who sometimes her skirt is short and he's worried about looking at her. So he deliberately takes his chair at his desk so that he's not facing her. He turns it around so that he is showing respect to her. And I thought, you know, if I was in a work situation where a guy couldn't look at me, that's not respectful. That's actually a form of sexual harassment. I agree. Because what that is saying is I only see you as body parts. But I read I read this a couple of years ago, this chapter, and I thought there's no way men feel that way. So I asked my husband and I said, you know, is this what you go? He thought I was joking. He started laughing at me. And I said, no, seriously, like, are you stressed during the day? Because my husband's a pediatrician. So all of his colleagues are female. He works a lot with nurses. He trains um, the residents who tend to be female. The parents who come into his office tend to be female. So he's in, he's basically in an all-female environment, right? So like, is this stressful? He really thought I was kidding. But the problem is that that book, and for women only, tell you that your husband will not admit that he has this problem. So it's telling me that I'm not supposed to believe my husband when he thinks that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And you know? it's funny, I had a conversation with my husband last night because I was telling him about your book. He's a CSAP and, uh, you know, recovering sex addict. So I was going, you need to give this book to all your wives. You, you need to, you need to everybody. <laughs> and I was telling him about this very section that every man's battle saying that guys are these insatiable beasts who just can't you know need to bounce their eyes and he's going he found it really offensive and this is someone who was deeply addicted mm-hmm. to porn and was objectifying people but he's certainly not now and now he's really offended by that message and he says it's just not helpful because we need to get out of objectifying people and actually seeing them mm-hmm. as you know image bearers of christ we're just pointing them so far in the wrong direction when we focus on you know let's just mm-hmm. ignore them as people that you know Good luck with yeah. that. <laughs> so let's move on to the third one. And this is perhaps the the most distressing one, but possibly the most important one and maybe the biggest one. And this is that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And it's absolutely devastating because when you get into, well, you know, do you want to? How does it make you feel? That is never even part of the equation. 
So let's talk a little bit about this one. What happens when women believe that sex is their Christian duty, no matter how they feel? Well, with this comes one of the most important findings, I think, of our survey. And um, we were looking at certainly orgasm rates as one of our outcome variables. You know, how, how do all these teachings affect orgasm rates? But the other big variable we were looking at was sexual pain. Because everybody knows what erectile dysfunction is. Very few people know what vaginismus is. Um, but a, a lot of women suffer from vaginismus, which is an involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscles, which, which makes penetration very painful or at times even impossible. And um, there's many different forms of sexual pain. A lot of women have postpartum sexual pain, especially if there's scar tissue after you give birth. Um, and, and what what we found was about 32% of women have at some point in their married life experienced sexual pain. Um, 20, roughly 20% was primary pain. So vaginismus 20% was, was postpartum and 7% have experienced it to such an extent that penetration was actually completely impossible. And um, it's long been known since the late 1970s, the, the literature, gynecological literature has known that women, Christian women, conservative Christian women experience sexual pain at rates twice the rate of the general population. Wow. So this is our problem. And so one of our questions going into our survey was what specifically about conservative Christianity causes sexual pain to increase? Like, what is it specifically? Because, you know, we know it's something about being conservative Christian, but what is it about being a conservative Christian? And we, we have a partial answer. I don't think it's the full answer. But when you look at this obligation sex message, the effect of believing the obligation sex message has the same statistical effect on sexual pain as prior abuse does. So you think about how much prior sexual abuse would affect women's sexual pain, and it has the same statistical effect. Wow. Now, that's not to say that it is as damaging as abuse. I do want to say that. I mean, if you were a victim of sexual abuse, we know that that trauma goes across all areas of your life and is really difficult to deconstruct. So I'm not trying to minimize the 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 trauma of sexual abuse. I'm just saying that in terms of sexual pain, the obligation sex message basically has the same effect. And I think it's because with sexual abuse, someone is saying, you don't matter. You only exist so that I can use you. And the obligation sex message says the same thing. And so our bodies literally experience that message as yeah. trauma. Yep. And, and the body keeps the score and the body is telling you something mm -hmm. that you are not perhaps even consciously telling yourself because you have been so ingrained. This message has been so ingrained. Yes. Yes. And of course it has many other effects too. It, it lowers um, arousal rates. It lowers orgasm rates, you know, all of those things as well. But I just found that that, that stat about sexual pain was so interesting. That is so important. And that needs to be, that needs to be shouted. That mm -hmm. is that is the message that needs to get out there. I also want to point out how many fascinating things there are in your book, all about, you know, different types of libido. And, oh, I thought it was really, really <laughs> fascinating. So there is something in this for everybody. And I believe that everybody, to a certain extent, is believing some of these lies or has done and has been affected. Mm -hmm. I really mm -hmm. do. So I just want to say thank you and I want to say 
this mustn't have been an easy book to write and put together, but also you are trailblazing in that you're going against some quite heavy hitting books and things. Mm -hmm. And that is a really bold, brave thing to do. We'll be praying for you Mm -hmm. um, that this message gets out there and that, you know, doors open because there is a lot of proprietorial, I don't know how to phrase it, but people don't want to hear this message for all sorts of reasons and it is a message that needs to get out there yeah I I think one thing we did too was was we didn't only so we did the survey of 20,000 women and then we took a look at peer-reviewed research to see what constitutes healthy sexual messages and then we developed this 12-point rubric this 12 point 12 measures of healthy sexual teaching and we created a scoring sheet you know, of a scores between zero and four. So a five spectrum scoring sheet for each of those 12 measures. And then once we had this rubric, we took the the 10 best-selling marriage books, the six best-selling sex books, and we put them through the rubric to see how they scored. Um, And that's something that hasn't been done before is that we're naming names. Like we've talked about some of them in this podcast, but we're very clear as to which books are harmful. And you know, there's a lot of them. Now there's some that actually scored quite well, but we also took the best-selling secular book and we put it through our rubric. So John Gottman's Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, and that book scored 47 out of 48. So it scored really well. Um, Gift of Sex by the Penners also scored 47. There were several Christian books that scored quite well, but the majority of books failed, like actually failed. And Love and Respect actually got a zero. So the best-selling secular book we looked at scored 47 the best-selling evangelical book we looked at scored zero. And that needs to matter because we're not doing this right. But what was even more um, difficult for us as we were looking at these results is that the only book out of all of the ones that we looked at, the only book that even talked about the concept of consent that said the word consent was the secular one. Um, it was on that measure of consent and obligation sex that the books collectively scored the worst. And there were so many books that gave stories of marital rape without calling them rape or else downplaying them. Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye, for instance, um, had a story of Aunt Matilda who was raped while she was kicking and screaming on her wedding night and then threw it her marriage and he was bemoaning the fact that she couldn't just embrace how great sex was and Tim LaHaye talked about Matilda and her equally unhappy husband so he had raped her the whole marriage and he was equally unhappy and that was the sort of thing that we found throughout our evangelical resources and so what we're just hoping to do is help people identify what's a healthy message and what's an unhealthy message, and then reframe all this so that we can point people back to a sexuality which is mutual and pleasurable and intimate and passionate as God designed it, and which isn't a one-sided entitlement. Because that's such a shallow picture. And it is, and it isn't, you know, it's easy to say, well, this is the patriarchy and, you know, this is, this is guys. This is not what healthy guys want either. No, it isn't. You know, and we're actually pro, quite pro male. Like we're, we're so in our lust chapter, we're so adamant that not all guys lust. Like it's this is a terrible thing to say about men. And noticing a woman is pretty is not the same as lusting. And we need to talk about this differently. Like 
It's demeaning to men. Exactly. And, you know, the guys want, they want connection. Mm -hmm. They don't just want a a receptacle, an inert receptacle. They they want connection and and they they want their their wife to enjoy it too Mm -hmm. and be getting pleasure from it too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we're aiming at. And that message is just getting, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know why why these messages aren't getting out there but we'll just keep we'll just keep flagging them and raising Mm -hmm. them and you know I feel like it's almost going to have to be a bottom-up message like a movement of women educating each other Mm -hmm. and that's why what you have done here um, is helping people discern what is healthy but also validating their instincts because we have known on a gut level that that this isn't right like I don't want to do this but I have to do this but I don't want to do this and and you you are just just pulling so much validation and healing and hope. I'm glad you said that word because that's what we were that's what we were actually hoping for is that we're hoping that as women read this book they just feel so validated and they feel so heard. You know because I, I swear if you read this you're going to see yourself on the pages and you're going to be like yes I'm not crazy that was really wrong I was it was okay for me to be upset about that so. Yeah. totally and I had some of those moments so I was like oh wow wow I'm in the 70% category yeah. you know and that is just so it's so it, it's it's liberating it really is mm-hmm. is there something that you could leave us with if there's a, a message mm-hmm. that, that you you could say to women who have you know sex has been a minefield it has just been horrific you know, and just something that they've had to put up with, or it's just been so painful because they've been consistently rejected. Have you got a message of hope for that? Yeah, we told the story in our obligation sex chapter about Hagar. And I just think this is such a beautiful story. Because if you remember that story from the Old Testament, God promised Abraham that he would have a child. But this wasn't happening. And so Sarah, who was quite old, said to Abraham, why don't you use my handmaiden, Hagar? And so he had sex with her, I guess, is a nice way of putting it. I don't think she would have had the ability to consent to that. So I think rape would probably be a better way of putting it. Uh, But regardless, he impregnated her and she had Ishmael. And then years later, Sarah does get pregnant and wants Abraham to send them away. And so Abraham does. He sends away Hagar and Ishmael and they go into the desert and Hagar encounters God in the desert. And God gives Hagar, this this slave woman, whose feelings have never been considered, who has been used and abused by everybody, including women who have made her feel terrible, not just men, just by everybody who has made her feel like nothing. And God gives her the honor of being the first person in recorded history to give God a name. And that name was the God who sees me. And I believe that God has been looking down at Christian women and he's been seeing how lonely and how vulnerable and how hurt and how rejected and how dehumanized we have been feeling by so much of the teaching and so many of the dynamics in marriage. And he wants us to know that he sees us. And I believe that he is doing such a big work right now. I believe that the dam is breaking and that people are going to start to reject these terribly toxic teachings and that God is going to teach us how to discern and how to see what is true and right. And I just believe that day is coming and I'm just glad that I could be a part of it. 
That is such a beautiful image to leave us with because I believe it too. And where can they find your book? You can't get The Great Sex Rescue yet. It's on sale March 2nd, but you can pre-order it and pre-ordering helps us so much. If you're going to buy it anyway, order it now <laughs> because it, it it helps us get more marketing dollars so that we can get the word out to other people. Um, but what I do have is I have a handout. If people would like to download our rubric and our scorecard, it's not even in the book. Our 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 partial rubric is, but not the scoring, um, the score, the scoring key and not the scorecard for each of the books. So this is something special you can get. And I will give you the link that you can share with your listeners so that they can download that. So you can actually go and see what books and how they scored. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That is brilliant. And you can, yeah. And you can use your that rubric, you know, if you're wondering if a book is, is a good one to recommend, you can take that book and you can look at it through the rubric and realize, no, wait a second, no, <laughs> you know, or you can say, yeah, this is actually quite decent. So yeah, it's a tool I hope that we can use. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I love it. This is, it's like, um, I always think of like, you know, those of us who are fighting in this field, we're like resistance movement. We're sort of doing these guerrilla tactics. Look, here's a handout. It's going to empower you and equip you. Yes. Yeah. And you know, women, like if, if the mega church pastors, if Kevin Lehman, if Emerson Egrick, if, if all the guys who write these books, if they never change their minds, it doesn't matter because if we do and we stop buying them all and we stop going to those Bible studies and we stop going to the churches that recommend this and we start demanding healthy stuff, we're going to get it. We have the power. They don't. Absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. So just before you go, tell us where we can find you, your other resources and, you know, how they can connect with you. Yes. Yeah, so I, I do a blog um, to love, honor and vacuum.com, which is all about when you feel more like a maid than a wife and a mother and you feel like life is just a big to do list and how to get passionate. So to love, honor and vacuum.com, we have a weekly podcast as well, which you can find through that. Um, we're talking about the great sex rescue all up until the release. And every week we're looking at a new um, harmful teaching and how we can reframe it and rescue it and turn it back into what God intended. So it's a really fun podcast, really great um, fun blog too. So yeah, and Great Sex, The Great Sex Rescue is just, it's anywhere books are sold. Hopefully you can pre-order it now and you can find that link, which we will give to you to share um, so that you can get that rubric as well. Brilliant. I am really excited. I cannot wait to see how this takes off and we are going to be right behind you. We will be championing this book for sure. So thank you once again for your time, Sheila. Well, thank you. It's been great to join you. So I hope that you've already paused the podcast, gone to Amazon, pre-ordered The Great Sex Rescue. And if not, don't panic. The link is right there in the show notes. What a wonderful way to conclude season two. And while you're waiting for season three to come out, you can always go back and listen to the earlier episodes of Fight for Love, especially those early episodes where we really do lay out the foundation of recovery. Take care, everybody. See you soon. Thanks for joining us. If you would like to ask the Fight for Love team a question or see our recommended resources, check out our website at fightforloveministries.org.